Good morning. Uh, if uh, you have not been able to join us uh, for, 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 for one of the two equipping hour classes, or maybe you are here for one of the equipping hour classes and would also like to participate in the other hour, those, those, those messages are online. Uh, but, but we had to uh, uh, make sure that you're logged into the church w website. You have to be logged into the church website to, 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 to be able to access those equipping hour classes. So if you are in one of them, I'd encourage you to have time to listen to the other. If you are not in either of them, though, please, please, please come and join us, either so that you can get more enriched in your understanding of, 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 of the Old Testament as our brother Ben leads us through the Pentateuch, or uh, in your understanding of parenting. I'd say that that parenting class is for any who are thinking about having children, any who have children, whether you have infants or grade school, it is just what does the Bible say about parenting? I want to start with a question, uh, although if you have your Bible with you this morning, you can open up to 1 Peter 5, and uh, I'll read in a minute from 6 to 11. But I want to ask a question. When was the last time that something kept you up late at night? And not just because you were watching a baseball game, but because of a worry. When was the last time a worry kept you up late at night? I don't know about you. Maybe this exposes too much that I can struggle with worrying. Do any of you, I don't even know if I want a show of hands. You can just think about this. Sometimes when I'm worried, I can get an ache in the side. Have any of you ever felt something like that, an ache in the side, or maybe a nervousness in your stomach? Maybe the kind of thing that kept you up late so you couldn't sleep, or that caused you to check your email compulsively again and again, hitting that refresh button. When you're worried, what do you do with that worry? Maybe you're like, you know what I really need now? It's to get some exercise. You know what I really need now is some ice cream. You know what I really need now is to do some house projects because I've got some energy I need to get out. Now, I'm not going to go so far as to say that anytime you're anxious, it's pride. But, have you thought about when you're worried, when you're anxious, confessing the sin of pride? Now, perhaps that's a shocking idea. That maybe, that maybe anxiety, that maybe worry is a manifestation of pride. Today, in God's Word, we're going to see that humility and worry are incompatible. Humility and worry are incompatible. Now, I'm going to say worry there because I know that there's things that can be heavy concerns for us, like someone's spiritual health. It's, it's good to be concerned. But when that turns into worry and that thing that you're just manipulating your thought again and again and again. See, and I, and I think it'll be clear in God's word that in reality, much anxiety is just powerless pride. It's powerless pride. It's pride that's kind of frustrated and angry, wishing it had more power. Our big idea this morning is that humility requires submission in every circumstance. Submission in every circumstance to God's sovereignty and trust in God's goodness. So humility requires submission in every circumstance to God's sovereignty and trust in God's goodness. There's two characteristics of humility there. Submission to God's sovereignty and trust in God's goodness. This morning we're going to start with, with the command to humble ourselves. We're going to look at four reasons to humble ourselves. And then we're going to look at how we can practically humble ourselves. And don't worry if you didn't catch all those. I'm going to go through them again if you're taking notes. If you have your Bibles with you, if you haven't already opened, turn to 1 Peter 5. I'm going to read verses 6 through 11. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, 
prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to, to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, Father, we do thank you for your word this morning, for this call to be humble before you. Lord, we thank you for what it says here that's so simple, that um, you care for us. And so, Lord, I do pray that this would be a humbling time where we are committed to humility, to trusting you in every circumstance because of your sovereignty, but also trusting your goodness, Lord. Pray, Father, that you would help us to learn what to do with worry. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's first look at the command to humble yourself. The command to humble yourself. It says in the beginning of verse 6, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. 1 Peter 5, 5, which I didn't read this this morning, ended with talking about humility too. We, we saw another command that Peter, the apostle, gives to God's people. At the end of verse 5, it said, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So there in 5.5, 5, we saw the command to clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. And there Peter's focusing on our horizontal relationships, towards one another be humble. But now he focuses towards a vertical humility, humility before God. The word humility in verse 5 and the humble yourselves in verse 6 comes from the same Greek root. And it centers around the idea of lowliness. To lower oneself is to willingly give up, up prestige or to give up status. Jesus exemplified humility by becoming man. And then in Philippians 2.8 says, being found in appearance as a man visibly it's what people saw, they didn't see his deity, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. He went even lower, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most shameful death. Jesus humbled himself lower. When we humble ourselves before God, we can't give up anything. Right? In a sense, we can't really come lower. Humility before God is just understanding who we are. If we give up anything, the only thing we give up when we become humble, unlike Jesus who humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, what we give up is our sinful delusions. We give up our self-deception. That we are anything other than sinful creatures deserving of eternal torment for our disobedience. That's the only thing that we can give up as we become lower. It is delusions and self-deceptions. Humbling ourselves is forsaking the lie of independence. That our lives are from us and through us. And it's instead embracing our existence as a creature. That our breath, that our heartbeat is sustained by God and for God. Humbling ourselves is forsaking the lie that we have innate goodness. And it's embracing what God's word says about our depravity, about our inability to save ourselves. Humility is forsaking the lie that we deserve anything from God. And it's embracing the truth that any good in our lives is due to God's kindness and grace. Humbling ourselves is looking into the mirror of God's word. It is looking into the mirror. What does God's word say about me? And then submitting to what it says. And then turning one's eyes to God the Son, the word become flesh. That is what humbling ourselves is. It is full of forsaking all those lies that we believe and embracing what God's word says. Embracing our roles as creatures Admitting that we are sinners. Confessing that there's no hope for us except Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning and you don't know 
God, if you don't know that you have a relationship with Him, if you've not been humbled before God, there is hope for you in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, come to Him, all who are weary and heavy laden, and He will give you rest. There is rest for the soul that comes to God's Word and is humbled and is broken and is desperate and says, I need a Savior. And that is why Jesus came, so that we can be reconciled to Him, so that we can be restored to a right relationship with God. But that is only for those who humble themselves before God. Peter's command to be humble in verse 6 is, is more than a general command to be humble before God. And I say general command like, like well, what is a general command? Uh, Peter has something specific in mind. The focus in, in this context is humbling yourself before God while going through difficult circumstances. Humbling yourself before God while going through difficult circumstances. Now, of course, you could apply this verse to your best day ever. You know, the day that you get married and get a promotion at work and win a raffle and a Nobel Prize. You could still apply this verse. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. It's a, it's, it's a good verse, right? I, okay, the best day ever, I need to humble myself. I'm looking for the exaltation that comes from God. But as we see in the context of 1 Peter, 1 Peter is all about the suffering that the saints were going through. As they were these, these sojourners and pilgrims in this world, as they were being slandered and maligned for their commitment to Christ, they were suffering, they were going through shame. We also see in verse 7, though, that Peter mentions their anxieties, their worries. Perhaps worries like, would they be dragged before the courts? Would they be persecuted for their commitment to Christ? Would they lose their job? Would no one go to them anymore because they didn't pledge allegiance to the emperor, but instead pledged their allegiance to Jesus Christ or worshipped him? We also see in verses 9 and 10, which we read this morning, a return to the theme of, of persecution. So Peter's writing in the context of, of anxieties, of worries, of persecution and suffering. So his focus isn't just broadly humbling yourself, although that's good and necessary, essential, but humbling ourselves when we go through hard things. When what God has decreed for your life is hard. It might not be unusually hard. It may not be as hard as what the saints in Asia Minor were going through. But when what you're going through is hard. Shaking your fist against God is not lowliness. Resenting his reign in your life is not humility. See, the opposite of humility is pride, which seeks to un-God God, is what we said last time launching from Thomas Watson. Pride manifests itself in rebellion, confident of its own ability to know what is best. Much as Eve thought it would be best to be like God, to usurp God's reign and say, oh, being like God sounds good. Pride bucks against God's decrees. Pride resists his will. Pride questions his wisdom. Pride distrusts his goodness. Pride doubts his faithfulness. Pride assumes its own superiority. To humble yourself before God is to submit to God's will when the future is uncertain, when the consequences are unpleasant, when the discipline you're going through is painful, when the diagnosis is bad, when the outlook is bleak, when the persecution is intense, when the pain is severe, when the darkness is long, when the isolation is persistent, this is when we must humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. Humility is to confirm what Nebuchadnezzar had learned the hard way. It says in Daniel 4.35 that God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? That is humility. Humility is to respond like Job did in Job 40, after God uh, asks him lots of questions. And he ends with, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Then Job 40, verse 3. 
Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Or in Job 42, the Lord wasn't done with Job yet. In Job 42, verse 2, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is what humility is. Humility says with our dear Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was facing taking the wrath for our sins of dying in our place, not as I will, but as you will. And your will be done. This is what humility is in hard times. To humble yourself is not resignation to God's will. It's not just resigning yourself. Well, he's going to do what he's going to do. It's remembrance. Humility is remembering God's character. Humility is remembering God's promises, his covenant. Humility is remembering God's son. Humility is what happens in Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19 as the people of Judah are facing the Babylonian invasion. And it goes from bad to worse here in these verses. Habakkuk 3, verses 17 to 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food. See, it's getting worse. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet, and makes me walk in my high places for the... And this is for the choir director, my stringed instruments. That is what humility is. Even though God takes away everything, even though it's gotten so bad that not only is there there's no food, we had to kill the animals too. Like this is an unrecoverable loss. Yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And you see how that is different from pride and anxiety and worry. Romans 8, verses 35 to 39. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? See, this is what humility says. Who can separate me from Jesus' love? Will tribulation, will distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? None of them, verse 37. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. This is a humble answer. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is what a humble response to the dark times is. Nothing can take me away. So it's not just resigning ourselves to say, I'm going to put my hand in my mouth because God knows what's best. It is embracing God's promises. It's embracing God's goodness to us, his grace to us in Christ Jesus. To humble ourselves is to bow in submission. It's to bow in confidence. It's to bow in faith to the faultless, omnipotent king who oversees every detail of our lives. Who sovereignly orchestrates every painful thing we go through. That's the command to humble ourselves. And uh, Peter is not finished. He gives us reasons. He gives us reasons to humble ourselves, and there's four of them. And all of them are going to be about God's character, his, his attributes. First reason is the grace of God. The first reason to humble ourselves, to obey this command, is the grace of God. We see that in the beginning of verse 6, with the word therefore. When we read therefore, we've got to look at what is that therefore, therefore. So we go backwards. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's the quotation from Proverbs 3, verse 34. Since God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, humble yourselves. Since our disposition towards God reveals our relationship to God, our disposition to God, whether we're humble or proud, reveals our relationship with God, humble yourself. Because the stakes are so high, because the opportunity for blessing is so great, because God gives grace to the humble, humble yourself. And it's the grace of God. Humble yourselves because of the grace that you've already received when you were first made right with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Humble yourself because of the grace that you are continually receiving now as you've been united with him and his spirit indwells in you, enabling your obedience. Humble yourself because of the grace that you will yet receive tomorrow and the next day and following into eternity. If you have new life in Christ, you can't die in your sins. You you can't go to spiritually dead. You've been regenerated. You've been resurrected internally. You are a new man. You don't go back to that old man. But although that's true, you can distance yourself from your father. You can stiff arm his grace in your pride. You can resist his sovereign rule. I'm not saying like you can, like you have permission. That would be may. You can subvert his authority. You can question his decisions. And this cuts you off from enjoying the grace of God. By doing so, it puts you in the pathway of discipline, in the pathway of consequences. So do you want to enjoy this relationship with your heavenly father? Then you must be humble before him because God gives grace to the humble. You must acknowledge your need of him because God gives grace to the humble. See, those who will not humble themselves, those who persist in pride, reveal over time that they have never received God's grace. And I don't just mean persisting for a season. I mean persisting because God opposes the proud. The the proud are opposed by God. This is what happens with those who leave the faith. I won't say it's the only thing that happens. It's one of them. Those who turn away from the gospel that they once appeared to hold dear. Perhaps they resent the persecution they face. They they, they get tired of of the opposition for saying that they're a Christian. They don't submit to God's will in that. Perhaps they, they become bitter that they don't have what God has given to their other brothers and sisters in Christ, and they resist God's will for their lives. Perhaps they, they covet the illicit pleasures enjoyed by the world, enjoyed by the world. They no longer submit to God's will for their life. Perhaps it, it looks easier to, to join what everyone else is doing in America. called it the pantheon of American gods. And that's really what's going on in America. Everyone taking on the role of God, determining what's true, what is right and wrong, what is moral, exalting themselves above God, joining all the other millions who determines what's right and wrong, or whether there is eternity, whether God's word is true. See, all of this is what happens when we refuse to submit to God, when we resist his sovereign rule. This is the danger. This is why people fall away. Some of that pride, I deserve more. I deserve better. I deserve to be the one who determines right and wrong. I shouldn't be treated this way. And so you reject the Lord and you put yourself in danger of leaving Unrepented pride is the first step on the pathway to apostasy. Unrepented pride is the first step on the pathway to apostasy. Shaking your fist at God is the beginning of leaving God's grace. Don't do it, brothers and sisters. Don't do it in any area of your life. With any disappointment, with any hardship, with any fear, don't shake your fist at God now because you may leave His grace This is not talking about the person who's been saved becoming unsaved. This is about the person who thinks that they're saved being exposed as not knowing him. Don't do it. God's grace is is a lush forest. It's a thick forest. It's a a forest that it's, it's branches. And the trees of the forest are heavy with the fruit of his grace. It's a verdant forest. And, and, and God's grace is like just, there's, there's fruit all over the place. But it's so heavy with grace, the pathway through the forest is low. Right? If you want to be walking, enjoying that beautiful forest of God's grace, you have to be low. You have to be humble. You have to be a creature. You have to be submitted 
So that's the first reason to obey this command. The grace of God. Don't leave God's grace. The second is the power of God. Peter says, therefore, that's looking back to the grace of God, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And God's hand in Scripture denotes his power in action. His power in action. Isaiah 66, verse 2. For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things come into being. That's God and his creative power. That's his hand. His hand is his power to reign, Acts 4.28, to do whatever your hand and your power, purpose predestined to occur. It's God's power to reign. It's his power to bless, Acts 11, verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them. Don't we want that? His power to bless, his enjoying his grace, his power to punish, Hebrews 10.31. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, God's hand is a picture of his power to create, to punish, to reign, to bless. God's hand is his freedom to do all that he desires, everything that he's decreed. No one can stop his hand. But the mighty hand of God, this phrase, the mighty hand of God, would have special significance to anyone who knew the Old Testament. See, this mighty hand was, was, was used almost always to refer to God's rescue of Israel from slavery in Egypt. God's rescue of Israel from slavery to Egypt. Exodus 39, we see it for the first time. For with a powerful, well, it's, it's not the first time, it's a good example. For with a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. That powerful hand, it's that mighty hand in, in Greek, the same Greek words. God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Deuteronomy 5.15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Deuteronomy 7.8, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. The mighty hand of God is the hand that accomplished the exodus. It is the hand of deliverance. It is the hand of redemption. And this is how we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And that is not a mighty hand that is going to squish you. That's a mighty hand that is going to deliver you. See, the mighty hand of God is God's power directed towards God's people for their good and his glory in accordance with God's promises. That's what God's mighty hand is. God's mighty hand is his power directed towards his people for his glory in accordance with his promises. Humbling yourselves under the mighty hand of God means waiting for his deliverance in whatever difficult circumstances you are going through. His deliverance from persecution, as they were in ancient Asia Minor. His deliverance from unjust shame for, for, for being treated in a way that you do not deserve. Waiting for God's deliverance as we go through physical suffering of this life, which sometimes keeps going. Waiting for deliverance from those clouds of loneliness that we have and those clouds of grief. To live, waiting under the mighty, humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God is waiting for his deliverance to come and rescue us. And it will. It may not be until Christ returns. It may not be until our death. But eternally, his mighty hand will deliver us from all of the unpleasant circumstances that we face. So humbling yourself is believing that God has the power to work all things together for your good. His deliverance is coming. So humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So we are motivated by the grace of God. We're motivated by the power of God. We also need to be motivated by the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. Peter continues, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, the delivering hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. There's the faithfulness of God. Peter remembered the teaching of the Lord Jesus well. Jesus said many times, Matthew 23, verse 12, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. God is faithful to keep those promises. The one who is humbled will be exalted. See, God never learns anything new which would make him rethink this promise to you. If you are in Christ Jesus, that promise is for you. You will be exalted. 
His mighty hand never fumbles. He never drops the ball. He never has to go to plan B. He never scrambles. Now, there may be times in this life where the Lord exalts those he, he's humbled. Like Joseph, after the lies of Potiphar's wife about him, and after his brothers had sold him in, into slavery, he, he was exalted in this life. Or Hannah giving birth to Samuel after being mocked for not being able to bear children. Or Daniel coming out of the lion's den untouched. There are times in this life where God may choose to exalt those who he's humbled. But keeping with the theme of 1 Peter, the exaltation that Peter focuses on is that which occurs at the return of Christ. 1 Peter 1.7, we've quoted it many times, so that the proof of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the exaltation that comes from him. See, the Lord has a perfect exaltation record and his streak won't be broken. All who are humbled will be exalted. Any who've humbled themselves to trust him as they go through painful and heartbreaking or unjust or embarrassing circumstances, any who look at their lot and say, this comes from the mighty hand of God, any who humbles themselves will be exalted. They'll be exalted with eternal reward and with eternal work. They'll be exalted with the eternal privilege of the Father's eternal presence. They'll be exalted with eternal conformity to the perfect humanity of Jesus Christ. They'll be like Him. Their every desire of their heart eternally will be, will be granted because they'll know what they should have been desiring the whole time, to see God and to be like His Son. And Peter does throw in a fourth reason here, and he doesn't come out and say, oh, it's because God's wise. But he says, at the proper time, or really, in Greek, it's just in time. In time. So we see that he motivates them to humility by the grace of God, by the power of God, the faithfulness of God, but also the wisdom of God. It's his wisdom. It's his time. Peter wasn't holding out to the saints a vague promise that better times are ahead. He's going to exalt you in time. It's going to get better. No, the exaltation that Peter was looking forward to was eternal. It would occur at the return of Christ. It will occur in time. In the last time. He doesn't specifically say that. In God's time. The time that God has appointed and not a minute earlier. God's mighty hand of deliverance rescued Israel in time. They waited it was 400 years before they were brought out of Egypt. His mighty hand will return to gather the saints at the glorious return of Christ in time. It's coming. Hold on. We're a day closer. Another week has passed. The billions upon billions upon billions of years are almost here. See, Peter returns to this theme of waiting. It begins the book, 1 Peter 1.13. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think after being in 1 Peter for getting close to a year now, I'm closer to fixing my hope on that grace to be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and I hope that you are too. That's the hope. It's not the weekend, it's not summer, it's not kids graduating, it's Jesus is coming back. 1 Peter 5, 4, the book begins with hope, the book ends with this hope. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Those who are humbled will be exalted. So let's get into the, the practical here. Okay, so there's the command to humble yourself, there's reasons to humble yourself. The grace of God, the power of God, the faithfulness of God, the wisdom of God. But let's look at this, the practice of humbling ourselves. How do we do this? We see it in verse 9. He tells us how. Casting all your anxiety on him. And the uh, verb tense of that word casting shows that he's explaining this command. He commanded you to humble yourselves, and now he's going to show you how. How to, how to grow in humility. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So Peter gets practical 
and what it is to practice humility, what it is to be humble. So let's first look at the action of humility. Humility has an action. Casting all your anxiety on him. That's the action of humility. It's what humility does. Anxiety is, is that which, which we're, wor- we're worried about, which we're concerned about. And, 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 and anxiety is maybe a, a difficult word here, and I'm, I almost want to be cautious using because we can kind of feel little bits of an anxious at times, and it may not be this sin of rebellion and pride. Although I think the more you analyze it, the more often you'll see, wait, is really pride going on here? And we're going to talk more about that. So anxiety is the things which we're concerned about. Now, we know that there's good, healthy concern, that Paul was concerned, concerned about the churches. You know, uh, uh, parents are concerned about feeding their kids. They're concerned about their children's obedience. So, so there's good things to be concerned about. But anxiety, worry is bad. We're, we're talking about the, those things that threaten to dominate the heart and the mind. The concerns which chase sleep away, which distract us and divides our attention. The troubles, whether real or imaginary, whether present or potential, that we seek to escape from or we seek to gain control over. Right? Those those troubles that either we want to run from or we're like, I got to master this. I got to solve this. Well, how do we humble ourselves? We humble ourselves by casting. By, and that verb means to throw. It's used in Luke 19, verse 35. They threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it as, as Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem. They threw their coats. And that's what it means to cast our concerns. It is to throw our concerns, to throw our anxiety upon God. And that means to return to his arms the burdens he has sovereignly placed upon our hearts. To return to his arms the burdens he has sovereignly placed upon our hearts. It's the weights of your roles and responsibilities. The weights of what God has given you to do in your family, your church, your job, your neighborhood. It's the concern you have regarding the salvation of those you love or the sanctification of those you love. It's the suffering that you're enduring. The health issues that won't go away, the darkness that won't lift. It's anxiety. It is the future. The future is one of those burdens that, in a sense, God, God knows that we're going to live. He knows that we wonder what's happening. It's what could happen that becomes an anxiety to our kids, to our health, to our job, to our finances. Peter's probably referring to Psalm 55, verse 22 here. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. So to cast is more than forgetting our cares. Like a kid who throws his backpack in the corner um, as soon as he gets home from, from school and he doesn't think about it again. Or it's more than turning off your smartphone so that you won't be, be, be interrupted by the work concerns for a while. That may be avoidance. Right? What this casting is to cast our cares on him. It's not denying that there's troublesome things. It's not minimizing them. It's not rationalizing that we go through hard things, that there is suffering. Casting is to take the burden from our back, to take those those, those fissures in our heart, to take the tears in our eyes, and to take those those hard, well-worn paths in our minds, and the things that we keep going through again and again and again and again, and entrusting all those to our Father's arms. It's like when I walk back from the grocery store with the girls and I help them carry the groceries, and it gets too heavy for them. And I say, Papa, will you help me? I can't carry this. That's casting our cares on our Father. Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And that's how we cast our cares. We tell him our concerns. We talk to him. We bring our requests before him. But let's explore more. What's, what's at, at, our, at heart here? What's this relationship between casting our cares and humbling ourselves? 
in the, uh, com the commentator Thomas Schreiner says, the logical relationship between the two clauses is as follows. Believers humble themselves by casting their worries on God. And we've got that part, right? We humble ourselves, how? Casting our cares on God. But, he says, if believers continue to worry, then they are caving in to pride. If believers continue to worry, they are caving into pride. Now, that may not be obvious. I think it's worth thinking about. See, worry is pride because it craves God's power to execute our wisdom and our will. Worry is pride because it craves God's power, his mighty hand, really, to execute our wisdom and our will. Worry covets sovereignty. Worry wishes for its way. Worry is just imagining finding a lamp with a genie in it. Worry desires independence. See, worry is pride because what it would really do, what worry would do, what our anxiety would have us do is create a God of our own design. Right? It would create a God with our wisdom, with our goodness, but let's keep a good dose of God's unlimited power. That, that's what our worry does. I want to take God's power. I'm going to funnel that through my filter, my wisdom, my wishes, the way that I would solve this problem. Worry escapes lowliness in the throne room of God and yearns for its own throne. That's what worry does. It's like, I'm not going to stay here anymore. Can you please get off so I can be there? Just give me a minute. It may be a small worry. It may be a huge, devastating worry. Worry wants to be able to snap its finger and just to create the reality it imagines. That's what worry does. It's important here that Peter says all. Casting all your anxiety on him. Why would you keep a portion of anxiety to yourself? Why does he have to say all? Like, like it should be a no-brainer. Of course, he's God. His hand is mighty. He's wise. He's good. I'm going to give all of that to him. See, but to give up our anxiety, to give up our worry, requires our submission first to God's commands. We can't entrust our cares to him when our cares are dressed up lusts. Okay? We can't and trust our cares to him when really our cares are just what we want looking good. Well, really what I want is this, so I'm, I'm going to justify it. I'm going to excuse it. I've got a good reason for it. It seems best to me. But is it really just the lust? Now, an a, 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 a older commentator says, says this. I think it's fascinating. His name is, is Robert Layton. All children, I mean, all childish, vain, needless cares are to be discharged. And as they are not worthy of casting upon your God, are to be thrown out of your heart. Now, this is interesting. There are, there are things that we worry about that are just sinful. They're childish and selfish. Like maybe, for example, you're worried about selling a home so that you can buy a home that you know you just want as a bigger home because you're greedy. I'm not saying it's wrong to sell a home, but you, just, you know it's really just about being, being greedy. So we feel anxious about, oh, is this home going to sell? And Robert Lane's saying, get rid of that. You know, that's this not even worthy of casting on God. You just get rid of that. He continues, entertain no care at all except those you wish to place in God's hands. See, I think many things we're anxious about are just selfish. We need to get rid of them. He continues, all necessary care God will receive. So then, rid yourself of all that you cannot take to God. Seek a well-regulated, sober spirit. and the things of this life, be content with food and clothing. Not delicacies, but food. Not ornaments, but clothes. First cut out superfluous care. 
and then turn over to God the care of what is necessary. And, I, and, and that's end quote. I love that distinction there. I'm sure you feel anxious about things that you know really just are just selfish. It's just what you want. And maybe you felt strange trying to bring those cares to God. And I'm not saying it's wrong to say, Lord, you know if we're going to make, if we're going to make the movie on time. It's, it's eliciting some selfishness in my heart. I want to trust that to you. It's, it's good. But as you think about the cares that you're bringing, what kind of cares are you bringing? Is there an anxiety in which you are unwilling to give to the Lord? Perhaps that you're concerned if you submit it to him, you won't be able to guarantee the outcome that you desire. See, it's really just something you're trying to arrange and manipulate as your own little God. I'm I'm, I'm going to go back to what Robert Layton was saying. Much zeal for him and a desire for his glory and minding our duty in relation to that is what he requires. So what God requires, I'll put this into today's English. What God requires is our duty in relation to him for his glory. Okay? So put those cares upon him. Think about your life as the responsibilities he's given you, the work he's given you to do, your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Those cares are a delight to bring to God. Simplify your life. I'm not talking about getting rid of stuff, but simplify what you're worried about. Bring those cares to him. And he continues, while we are bending our whole care to that, to doing what he requires, he undertakes the care of us and our condition. So what has God required of you? What's the work he's called you to? What's the work that he has called you to? That work is not to save our children. We can't save our kids, for those of us who are parents. We can't change our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not the work that he has called us to do. Do the work that he's called you to do, and you can entrust that to him. Now, of course, he does say all anxieties. We can still bring the sanctification of our brothers and sisters, the salvation. We can bring those other concerns to him. But I love that distinction between the things that we are selfishly stuck in and the things that we know we ought to do. So that is the action that humility takes, casting our cares upon him. We also look at the confidence of humility. So the action of humility is casting our cares upon him. Here's the confidence of humility. Because he cares for you. Peter doesn't, doesn't dismiss the reality that we have burdens. We have to do something with them. We entrust them to the one who cares for us. See, entrusting our cares would be terrifying if God weren't good. But God's not indifferent to us. He's not fickle. He's not forgetful. He's not cruel. He's not malicious. He has all the power to take what we entrust to him and all the care to do perfectly with it. Matthew 6, 25 to 30 has to be quoted. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink. Nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Jesus didn't die for them. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. And I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? See, God's, God's, God's concern with our lives is not just like a video camera that records everything. He's not just a, a dashboard cam in case something goes wrong. God's care is intimate. He will not mock us for the cares that we bring to him. He delights when we submit our cares to him. He relishes being father. He has eternally been father to the son. Because of his grace, we get to participate in this eternal relationship between father and son. We get to know him as father. We can cast our cares upon him because he cares for you. 
Are you willing to humble yourself before your good father and cast your cares upon him? Are you willing to humble yourself before your good father and cast your cares upon him? Or is pride pushing you to fence off little portions of your life, believing that those little worries are better under your control, trying to to, to make some room where there's little kingdoms over which you can play at being little gods? That's what we do with our worries. We're just playing in little kingdoms, pretending to be little gods. We have a much better father that we can bring our cares to. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Let's pray. And Father, I thank you for the instruction that your word brings. I thank you, Father, that you are faithful with us, that you are patient that while you have hatred for our sin, you have pity on your children. And I confess to being one who worries often over so many things, some of them just selfish and some of them I think I can justify. Lord, but you are God and you are sovereign and you are good. And for those of us who have Faith in your son, you are our father, and you care for us. You are so worthy of being humble before. You are full of grace. Your hand is mighty. No one can can criticize your faithfulness in, in all of creation. Your timing is perfect. Oh, Lord, it is so good to humble ourselves before you. And we confess that you are right in the circumstances of our life. You are right. You are unquestionably good. Our mouths are silent. And we want to cast our cares upon you. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen my brothers and sisters, particularly those who have been worried Uh, Lord, there's some of us who need to repent of the things that we're worried of because they've been selfish. Lord, but there's others who are worrying over things that in themselves are good desires. Lord, I pray that you strengthen them to cast their care upon you. I pray, Father, that they'd be able to confess this, this sin to their brothers and sisters. That they would be held accountable to be thinking the truth about you, about your character, about your attributes, about your care. Lord, we thank you that Christ came so that we don't have to be enslaved to worry. Worry disgraces you. It disgraces your character. It disgraces your your promises. It disgraces the fact that you gave us your son and what good thing would you hold back from us? Lord, it does not honor you as you deserve. It is not worship. It is proud, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would cleanse us from this pride. In Jesus' name, amen.